So if you know this song, you should sing along, Tom and Franz. <laughs> wow, wow, no cow, <laughs> no, no, no. Did you see this one? You should the be Super in a field full of oats. <laughs> That's where you're supposed to be. <laughs> Yes, good, you're right? talking about the Super Bowl ad, right? I actually didn't know it's a Super Bowl ad. I just saw the ad and was like, wow. It Actually, it is an old ad, but then they reused it for a Super Bowl, I think, 2021. Yeah, it was from 2014. It was it went out <laughs> in Sweden. And then, yeah, imagine that, going back to a six, seven-year-old campaign, which Alan yeah. has so faithfully reproduced. <laughs> <laughs> you I threw have to, to admit- boot camp. Great. So the question is, who made this ad? Yeah. Well, people would pause it. Who, how could they possibly tell? I imagine they've clicked on it. But, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Watch it. So yeah, welcome to the uh, DMB podcast where we share business confidence with the design community. And this is another business design teardown. So we have a look at a brand, a product, a business that uh, design community generally loves. And we take a look at, um, is this just a fancy design or is it fancy business as well? Um, and in this one, obviously we are tearing down Oatly. We are. Oatly. Who, it turns out, not just oat milk. So to get us started, quick quiz. How many individual products do you think Oatly make? Yeah, one guess each. And I'm going to come to Franz first. So absolutely individual, individual products. You can go over under, you know. Um, 25. Okay. Mm. <laughs> 75. Wow. Okay. Not there yet, Alan. Um, oh, no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, it depends if you're looking in US or Europe. It's mm. it's anywhere between thirty and uh, thirty and forty five products, um, and thirty oat, to forty five. Yeah, it does vary. Some territories they don't do um, some of the frozen products um, and some of the cooking alternatives, but yeah, definitely over thirty, which for a lot of people will be a bit of a surprise um, because you might think Oatly, yeah, they just make oat milk, but no, they're pretty, uh, they're diversifying all the time. So I'm going to run you through what some of those are. If you've not heard of Oatly, they are most famous for the oat milk. So they make shelf-stable oat milks. So those are uh, are milks that can kind of be stored outside the chiller. So they have like very long shelf life, um, can keep them in your cupboard for a long time. They also do the chilled oat milks. And I think this is the starter off, right? This is where most people have seen Oatly go down the chiller aisle looking at your alternative to the old udder based product um, to the no cow based product so all the chilled ones so things like the barista version the low fat versions the chocolate ones so something like eight or nine um, shelf stable and then chilled oat milks as well Mm. and then they do the on the go ones so little cartons you can take with you so that's like the the og product so those alternative milks made from oats using science some clever shit that we'll get into. It's uh, funny you say OG because I think on the packaging it even says original, right? Yes, because they've yeah they 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 invented oat milk, um, which which I will come on to shortly. Mm. But um, yeah, they, they've they've got rightful claim to saying they are the original. Um, whether they are the best or not, that's, I'll leave that to people to decide from their taste tests. So that's the 
um, oat milks. And then they also do like yogurt alternatives now, which they cleverly call oat girts. Of course they do because they're oatly <laughs> and they're quirky. Um, cooking alternatives. So oat based alternatives to creams and creme fraiche and spreads and cheeses. Um, and then finally, my favorite category, uh, the sort of ice cream alternatives. So they do a soft scoop, frozen uh, and like dipped bars. So, yeah, not just oat milks. I've never tried those. Like, like are they really good, the ice creams? I really rate the ice creams. Um, yeah. I like the kind of alternative ice creams anyway. There's like a whole bunch of brands in the UK and you probably get them as well. Like Jude's in particular is one that I really like, which is, I think, soy based. Um, yeah, I think that's an area where um, there's some really interesting product innovation been happening. So, yeah, out of all of those, which ones um, are you guys familiar with? Have you tasted a few of those before? Is it just the milks? Um, Franz, have you dived? dived into their frozen range i can happily say yes i know this brand (laughs) (laughs) i've known it before podcast research (laughs) um yeah maybe i said this already one thing i really really like is grocery shopping oh yes you said in the last last podcast it was quite a surprise so many people love online grocery shopping i love going to the store going through the shelves, seeing what's there, trying out new things. So this is really something that I really, really like. And then cooking with with stuff. So I really like their oatmeal products, honestly. I'm not a regular customer, but I obviously tried them. I have a different brand of my um, oat milk that I go to. I like the Boo. oat gourd. <laughs> okay, that's cost reasons, okay? <laughs> <laughs> So I like their old good, honestly. It's good. And I liked, or I tried, and I okay-ish liked their spreads. I never the, tried the spreads. The spreads yeah. were news to me from doing this research. Um, so do you use them like instead of like a cream cheese or do you literally exactly. use them like a butter or margarine? No, it's like cream cheese. Okay. Exactly. But I've never tried, and I honestly didn't even know before that they also had sweets, like frozen yeah. stuff. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so the, the sweets are the ones that um, seem to have fallen in and out of favour, and seem to be the ones that are less consistent across territories. Um, mm. So yeah, you may not get them where you're listening to this. Alan, into the milks, tried any of the others? Mm, so I honestly only tried the milk, um, probably like the ordinary, the regular one. Um, but I'm not a big consumer of uh, milk in general, uh, so not even plant based ones uh, i also don't drink coffee so i don't use like what oat. yeah okay. that's maybe for a separate episode yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um but no um so actually when we lived in germany we did have oatly at home all the time and then we moved back home slovenia and oatly is not uh present here you can find them in certain specialized stores uh, but it's yeah, it's not as convenient as just grabbing an alternative, and there's plenty of alternatives. Um, so yeah, I can maybe also provide a little bit of perspective on you know how you switch from one to the other. But yeah, um, milk is the only one I'm familiar with. Cool. I'm going to be trying a few of the others. I'll give the spread a go based on Franz's recommendation. But um, yeah, I, I've used Oatly for a long time, and then just recently, same as Franz started looking at my cost of my weekly shop 
you know, cost of living crisis and everything. And I've switched out to an alternative as well. Um, so yeah, not, not been using Oatly for a few weeks, but it is good, good stuff. Um, I think the town, I know, I, I'm sorry. I, I, I mentioned my hometown quite a lot on this podcast. I'm sure it's quite annoying, but Brighton is well known for, um, it's kind of vegetarian, vegan scene and stuff. And I saw it cropping up a lot locally, like, many many years ago particularly in coffee shops um the barista edition of the oat mm. milk and that was mm-hmm. what really caught my eye originally so i don't think i saw it so much in the supermarkets first but in coffee shops um and i know when franz maybe gets into strategy we might talk about how that relationship blossomed with um with uh with the barista community yeah. which was because it's pretty much on purpose it's interesting that that's how it played out for you mm. But yeah, we'll get to it. We will get to it. Um, so a quick uh, history lesson. So you might think, oh, Oatly, they're this upstart from the last five or 10 years. And you'd be That's wrong. That's exactly what I thought. Same, man. <laughs> Absolutely same. They were founded in the 1990s um, in somewhere called Lund in Sweden. This is going to be another episode where I butcher some names. I'm really sorry if you're Swedish. Um, <laughs> um so founded by a chap called Ricard Oste, food scientist, um, and developed from research he had been part of at Lund University in Sweden um, with the aim to create this sort of nutritious, lactose-free milk alternative. So this, this, there's a lot of, when you read about the story of Oatly, people were talking about it as like this overnight success in the mid 2000s. But this is an overnight success that took like 30 odd years, was based on research from the 80s and 90s. Like like most overnight successes, there was an awful lot of hard work that went into getting there. Um, but so yeah. Getting he, to the night. Indeed. It's a long <laughs> night. Long <laughs> night. Um, so they developed this patented enzyme technology, which basically turns oats into a liquid with a sort of milk-like consistency. So... I'm going to take a punt that many of our listeners have tried milk alternatives. Um, and you're, if you've tried Oatly, it's pretty damn good as far as like the texture and mouthfeel. And I don't think it was always like that. Like a lot of milk alternatives back in the day were pretty grainy. Um, you know, you would absolutely be able to tell the difference. But this technology really changed things. Um, but isn't there like a story where they pitched the first version of the Oatly and the guy, it was like a, a person from the R&D of one of the dairy, big dairy companies at the time, and they basically spat out milk because it wasn't good enough. Yeah. So even that, like, I think even the technology they developed in the 1990s was not Nowhere near what, what it is, is now. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, Still, you know, they were laughed away. I, it, there's this great, that Oatly do a great job of plotting their history on their website. And I would, I would, I'm going to do a very quick rundown and nowhere near as um, entertaining a job as they do. Go and look at their website and look at their history page. It is hilarious. Um, And they've got some great videos about pitching uh, the technology back in the day and uh, Ricard kind of in this cafe talking about it um, and how he got laughed off um, by investors. And then he's like, but who's laughing now? And then like the shades <laughs> come down and the music drops like the meme. It's, it's, it's really well executed. There's a real, um, attitude to it that I like. So yeah, massive food, uh, innovation from a science-based chat. Um, so yeah, they invented oat, oat milk as we know it today through this enzyme technology, um, which has been, Copied many times now. And, you know, those alternative brands that Franz and I, <laughs> for budget reasons, are now tasting, very, very similar 
um, to Oatly, and I'm sure we'll touch on competition as this um, as this conversation progresses. So they were initially popular in Sweden and parts of Europe, um, and were you know things were pretty quiet. You know, very slow growth for a long time. We'll touch on that later, but we all know exploded significant growth in the 2010s, particularly after entering the US market. Um, and that all changed really with the change in branding strategy. Um, and for me, I always talk about in these uh, the start of these podcasts about why designers love a product that we talk about. And very often it's about the design of the product or the features or something like that, the quality of it. It's a good quality product, but you can't really have that same lens on it as a designer. It's like, oh my God, I love the design of their their enzymes, man. They're great. It's 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 the branding. <laughs> it's, it's beautiful science. <laughs> the science is just oh it's it is the branding strategy um that is the particularly interesting part of their story. Um I think it's the reason why we're talking about them today, right? Is is they do things differently. Um, they're known for this very quirky, very, very direct, very honest branding that is so at odds uh, and so different um, to the kind of alternative milk and even like vegan vegetarian messaging that had gone on for decades past. Even any its, food brand, right? Any food yeah. brand, really. Yeah. The only one that I I kind of feel like it has a similar. I know what voice. you're going to say. Can I? Can I? Yeah, can go I on, guess? Friends, you guess. Yeah. Um, ben and Jerry's. No, that wasn't. Oh, come on, say. I have another. <laughs> okay, Alan. Impossible Burger. No, no. Mm. Ah, come on, what comes uh, up now? <laughs> well, this might just be a UK-based company, but every content designer I know and every copywriter I know wants to go and work for Innocent Smoothies. Ah, mm, yeah, you're right. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. That that's that that for me. They're kind of there's there's a Venn diagram there of their kind of tone of voice and um, way of approaching things, which is so delightful and um, engaging. So, yeah, you've already said as far as strategy goes, big differentiation between the kind of messaging that had gone before, and they. But again, they weren't like this right out the gate. They weren't like there's this kind of quirky upstart. Um, tone of voice and branding from the 1980s and 1990s if you looked at the packaging back then it was so dull it was um it, nothing to scream about did it's not, really bad did, it's, it's not bad. even bad it's, just it's bad. actually bad yeah, it's bad <laughs> um and uh thankfully when the ceo tony uh Peterson, uh joined the company in 2012 he knew that this needed to change if it was going to be a success and he brought in a new chief creative officer who took some convincing, having looked at the existing brand, uh, and this was just fucking oat milk company, to, to come on board. But it was transformational. Um, Franz, I'm going to try not to steal too much of your thunder, I promise. Um, but that was really where I think it starts to become a fascinating story about the power of design, the power of brand. Um, so, yeah, they've gone on to... It, you know, started to have this connection with coffee culture, which I think really helped with the kind of cool element to, to the brand as well. But for me, the bit I really want to emphasize, and I think is the area that designers maybe should look into, and we are definitely going to talk about today as being a key strategic decision, um, was deciding to dispense with all of their existing uh, kind of marketing strategy. 
you know, uh, traditional food marketing companies work with a lot of sort of different agencies. Um, it's a very um, kind of bottom-up approach to marketing, uh, whereas they brought in this guy called John Schoolcraft uh, as chief creative officer, and he basically just got rid of, of all their current marketing, internal, um, external agencies, everything, uh, and developed what they decided to brand the Department of Mind Control, which is a incredible it's name. It's crazy, yeah. Didn't even that, like, they completely um, let go of the marketing department yep. and there was this became marketing department? This is that, become, That's a story. Yeah. 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 So that's the story they like to tell. So we came uh -huh. on and what we did was completely dismantle current marketing and put marketing, so marketing as a business function being dismantled and marketing being marketing and brand being put in the hands of um, creators. Absolutely. Um, and friends, I know you're going to go deep on this, um, but a few kind of headline points is no outside agencies anymore. So they had control of every touch point, um, which is just you know unheard of. Um, takes an awful lot of, uh, lot of effort. But by bringing everything in a, internal, they were able to do stuff that no other marketing department would be able to do. They were very brave. And that started by not being briefed like you would with a normal marketing company where decisions are made with finance and sales and the CEO. Um, and then that is briefed out to the marketing team or the marketing agencies. The department for mind control, the creative team are in the middle of all meetings. And this is where we want design to be, right? We yeah. want to be there. We want to have that trust. And this came from the fact that the new CEO knew the power of um, creative in changing the direction at Oatly and had absolute trust in John Schoolcraft, someone he knew um, from previous work. He knew this is the guy that could come in, have a seat at the table and fucking own it. And incredible um, work they've done. Franz, I can see you want to jump in there, mate. Go for it. <laughs> Oh, good. <laughs> I just heard you swear again. Sorry. <laughs> that was my laugh about. <laughs> In my mind, I was like, oh, explicit, explicit episode again. Expl I'm I'll so need to, sorry. I'll need to type in the button again. I'm, I'm, um, I'm really sorry. I think it's, I think it's the Oatly, Oatly kind of. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oatly, the brand brings it's it out brand. of you, right? It's they have this page, like, fuck Oatly, right? It's yep. one of their websites. Well, you know what you're the taking is? everything away from me come on oh, I'm, looking, <laughs> I'm really i'm looking at their strategy document that um i i implore you to do a google for john schoolcraft um talks on youtube the guy is so engaging and he shares their um their strategy document um franz are you going to touch on this later no go on uh and it's full of expletives which i love so <laughs> it's it's basically like saying um, this this sort of four point this kind of scale where you've got scared shitless on the left and fucking fearless on the other side. This is literally the wording they use in their strategy document, and then good at the top and evil at the bottom. And they said like ninety percent of all companies are in the scared mm -hmm. shitless, and some are in the good or evil um, camp, and they don't do anything about it. They just you know they're happily bobbing around there, whereas Oatly are in the fucking fearless good quadrant right up there, top right. That's Oatly. Uh, and there's another brand, uh, Monsanto, who we might touch on later, who they have in the like fearless but evil, evil. Uh, camp. <laughs> so they're like, that's our strategy document. We pull that up all the time. 
And I, I'm really sorry for all the swearing, but it, it, these guys are bringing it out of me. <laughs> no, that's going to be a great story today because we are coming right back to the bottom left quadrant at the end of my story. Wow. What's the bottom but, left again? <laughs> bottom left is scared shitless and evil. Uh, no, uh, sorry. Then I meant bottom, bottom right. right. Bottom right. Evil and f- Effing fearless. It's too late now. This is an explicit episode. We can swear exactly. as much as we want, can't we? So this is where we will return to. Um, but first, let's talk strategy, right? Yes. So um, last time I did it a little bit differently, right? Last time I went through like company history and only then uh, explained to you all the significance of the decisions. Tom said he liked it. Sorry, Tom. It's going to be different again this time. So... We will go through three eras of this company. And the first era is what you already described, right? Founded in 1993, 1994 by these brothers Öste, um, Rickard and Björn Öste. Uh, both of them, the scientists at Lund, we know this, created this or researched this enzyme technology to turn to- oats into liquid. Um, and they tried to sell it to dairy companies because they were like, okay, I mean, who can we... They were scientists, as we said. And the scientists are also not the best business people. I'm sorry, I'm not wanna... I don't wanna offend anybody over here, right? But scientists usually like to do science and like to, to create something and then somebody else does the business side of this. So they wanted actually to sell it and they were, as you already said, laughed out of this room. Dairy... Um, companies are like, I don't like the taste. I don't like the concept. We do what we do and we do <laughs> quite well. So no need I mean, it just for that. Makes sense. Yeah, it was just way too early. <laughs> exactly. But for me, it was funny to, to hear that this was the beginning of the story because if you look at the branding today, it just feels like it began as being like, we are completely against theory industry. We want to fight against them. But actually in the beginning, they pitched this whole product to the dairy exactly. companies yeah because if you have a product that's similar to something and you don't want to sell it yourself who are you going to of course the company that you're similar to because maybe they can do something with that so that didn't work out so they decided to start their own company so just a bunch of people the brothers together with and i'm trying now ingegard Sjöholm, inger alden leonard lindahl um, so these were the founders together with a cereals company. Um, interesting too, right? So cereals company, another, let's say, related business. And they founded the company Siba um, AB. So it's not Oatly, but Siba in 1994. And this was all the start of what I called the Woodstock era. So this these eras, they have um, location names this time. So this was the Woodstock era. So Woodstock era was, okay, um, we are food scientists. We know that a lot of people have uh, issues with digestion of lactose. So we're going to do something that's more natural. Um, So this was this green movement of like 80s and 90s, right? So they presented themselves as nutritious, lactose-free alternative to milk. They targeted basically lactose intolerant people. Um, their brand was super technical, super like emphasizing functional benefits. As you said, it wasn't really a brand. It was it wasn't great. <laughs> and in 
and it was sold in these health food stores, like the ones that, again, like Woodstock, right? So you have this um, early wave of, let's say, let's be different, let's be more green, but in a time where there was still big boom of, let's say, capitalism and faster and and higher and and um and yeah more money right this was the 90s so um it was sold exclusively in sweden it was exported a little bit into neighboring nordic countries like denmark norway finland and it almost like it didn't have anything to do with the current oatly that we know but there was one strategic decision that they made back then that is still up to date which is the sole focus on oats as raw materials. So that was their research, but they also specifically decided no almonds, no rice, no soy, um, only oats. And that's still Sorry, true. And the company was called Oatly at the moment, at that time, or? The product was called Oatly. Uh-huh, uh, the company was called Seba, Seba. Yeah. Right. And today company is called Oatly and the product is called uh, I think the company is also not called Oatly, honestly. They I think Oatly Group A B something. Yeah. I'll have that a look. could be. Okay. So that strategic decision that they made back then, that's still true. So right, when you look at dairy alternatives, you have all bunch of different raw materials, right? We have as I said, almonds, rice, soy, some they don't even brand as a specific um, raw material. So we know almond milk, soy milk, some companies, some brands, they also have plant-based milk and they don't really brand as now I am coming from oats or I'm coming from this specific plant. And that's something that we need to keep in mind because this is still something that sets them apart from other manufacturers in the um, dairy alternatives markets. So that's still something that they capitalize on saying, hey, we are in this business since the 90s and we have never done anything other than oats. We are the inventors. We are the ones who know it all. We are the ones who can create the best oat products uh, ever. And they have capitalized on this in their whole communication, right? So that's what they also play on. We know how to do this. And this Woodstock era, that lasted for about 20 years. So mm. it lasted until 2012. And at this point in time, they made about 17 million US dollar in revenue, about, right? So I just took um, Swedish krona revenues. Um, yeah. In a year or 70 altogether? In 20 17 years? In, in 2012. Right, okay. Yeah, exactly. So from 1994, they were uh, able to grow from zero, starting company, to 17 million US dollar per year in 2012. Which is like, okay, but yeah. it's nothing like crazy. You know, you wouldn't get any investors for this kind of growth. Exactly. It's a, million. I mean, yeah, you it's can a have nice, a nice company with 17 yeah, million. Very, very nice. Yeah. Very nice, yeah, yeah. But it's not a company that we will all be talking be, about today. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Now, um, the thing happened that Tom already pointed us towards uh, because at this point in time, 2012, uh, the Öster brothers brought in an outside CEO, Tony Peterson. And this chap, 
uh, took Chap. a friend <laughs> with him, which uh, is called John Schoolcraft. Exactly these two people that uh, Tom already introduced us to. So Tony as CEO and John Schoolcraft as Chief Creative Officer. But do you know that the guy, did we talk that the guy who sang that song in the Wow, Wow, No Cow is actually the CEO? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. Like, <laughs> So this CEO, just painting you a picture. If you haven't seen the ad, you can watch the ad. It's a Super Bowl ad. So he stands in the middle of an old field with a keyboard and sings this song. <laughs> <laughs> and which other CEO would have done this? Exactly. Um, and that already shows a little bit of the vibe that these two people introduced, right? And they opened what I now call the Berlin-Kreuzberg era. So if you're not familiar with... I mean, you are going to have to explain these eras. <laughs> okay. So Woodstock is all clear, right? So we are in the first green hippie. revolution hippie. Yeah. Mm. Now we are in this kind of hipster um, um, era. And if you're not familiar with Berlin-Kreuzberg, then I just give you Brooklyn as the alternative. Gotcha. Yeah. Am I somewhat correct, Alan? I mean, it's I not exactly for... the same, but I mean... Yeah, tell Portland, me what. Brooklyn, hipster beards, armed sleeve tattoos. Um, uh, no, Kreuzberg is good. I would have gone for uh, Prinzlauerbeck as another part of Berlin. It's it is very, you know, hipsterish and so on. But it's a little bit more like there are families and there are kids. So you know, you think a little bit more about the planet and all of these things that I think also is what Oatly is, is trying to to portray with their values. Yeah, but yeah, Berlin is a nice as a city. I think it's a good analogy for for this uh, type of uh, this stage of the company. Yeah. So this era, Berlin Kreuzberg or Brooklyn era, uh, lasts from 2012 to 2016. So bear in mind, I made this up, right? So, <laughs> so <laughs> made up the name, not the, not the years. You know, it, it's, I'm liking where you're going with this. This is this game. <laughs> Okay, so from 2012 to 2016, Tony and John completely transformed this company. So they turned Oatly into this quirky, edgy, provocative brand that it kind of still is when you look at the website and when you look at everything they do. So they continued to focus on oats. They invested further in product development. I mean, there was a way towards these, what he said, 35 to 45 products so obviously that is a big thing but the core strategic decisions in my opinion are on branding and marketing um, a focus of branding and marketing but also to be fair their operations on sustainability and distribution so go through it step by step first one branding and marketing and that's exactly what Tom you already introduced I mean most of us listening here uh, will know Oatly in one or way or the other. But the whole story starts with Tom, Tom, uh, Tony and John um, yeah, dismantling, eliminating this traditional business-focused marketing department and putting branding and marketing into the hands of creators and creatives. And what they wanted to achieve is going away from focused groups and and targeted marketing and data-driven marketing, that's what they said, which what they say leads to messaging that everybody expects. 
And their idea was to have creator-driven branding and marketing um, with a guideline that they call consistently inconsistent. And I really kind of like that. So, what, do you, what, what does it mean? Consistently inconsistent means that you don't know the next move because they don't know the next move. They kind of have values. They are they portray themselves. They say that they are a value-driven company. Value-driven company uh, for them means um, they focus on being good for people and planet. And that's what their company is about, not only in their products, but also in their operations. But everything they do in marketing and branding and product development it's all over the place. Like there is, it's consistently inconsistent in terms of what exactly are you now doing with your next ad campaign? What exactly are you now doing with your next packaging? What exactly are you now doing with your next product? It's like, let's see what happens. We just need to progress. And this is what they yeah, famously said that their strategy is now, right? They had values that they based the whole company on, but the rest should be consistently inconsistent. Mm. Yeah, they don't give an S. Like they, and the, the, I don't know how true this is, but in the talks that I've seen, um, they talk about traditional marketing departments would have uh, would just spin out if they knew the fact that they don't have any KPIs. They don't really track these campaigns terribly well. They're not, like you say, they just see a move that they think is Oatly-esque and they can be bold and they just go for it and they just trust their instinct that if they are authentic and own these moves and be bold that it that it speaks to to the brand and will have the impact that it needs to have now whether that's completely true or not i don't know i'm sure there's some sort of level of tracking that happens but yeah and also they are consistent in what they're doing yes that's just another way of um yeah creating this brand and creating this brand was as we said completely in the hands of this creative department they do their own packaging design they do their own typography. They do their own website. There is no outside agency. And the way they do it is different, let's say. <laughs> it is refreshingly different. Um, so they completely reprocessed the brand from this health and function focus to trying to create an emotional lifestyle brand, only being good for people and the planet and establishing it as this antidote of the dairy industry saying, this is bad, this is old, we are new and we are the way forward. Yeah, like and rebels. I'm saying it so black and white because that's exactly what they are doing. So they aim for a love it or hate it brand. Yeah. Whatever they do is so edgy that you can't, like if you follow it, you can't say, meh. You can either say, okay, that's really cool. Or you're like, nope. There's no middle. Not at all. Is there? It's. Uh, I think it's probably worth. Um, I think most of us, including myself, until researching this this uh, episode, I was very familiar with the actual carton packaging, and I, you know, I've read it while my coffee's brewing, and found you know it aligns with everything you've said there. But if you dig a bit deeper and look on the website and look at some of the activations they've done, it does it does push boundaries. Um, yeah. If you've only looked at the shelf packaging, you might be like, yeah, I see that a bit. But look at some of like the video campaigns they've done and some of the billboards and takeovers. Like there's some pr they, they push boundaries for sure. Yeah. So 
you ready for some examples? Mm-hmm. So they love controversy. They use every controversy they get and sometimes they're even provoking it. So good example was they had in this campaign of 2014. So Alan, what, do you want to sing it again? What was the tagline? Wow, wow, no cow. Yeah, and then? No, 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 wow, wow, <laughs> no cow. It's just repeated twice as far as I know. <laughs> okay, so the tagline of this whole year was milk but made for humans. Oh, uh, yeah, I think they still use this tagline, right? Yeah. Or is so, it just, just like milk? I think they had to change it, right? Um, exactly. So in 2014, they had this new slogan, milk, but made for humans. Um, and they were sued by a huge Swedish dairy conglomerate because this is where they launched their uh, ad campaign first. So first thing they did was not being quietly fighting this, but they decided to publicly cover the court hearings, even if it was not a public case. So what they did were there was they were making sketches and like paintings and then they just basically made a comic or a publication out of this court case. Obviously, one way to do it, eventually they lost and they were not allowed to use the slogan milk but made for humans anymore in Sweden, which is why they launched a huge ad campaign in the UK with the exact same messaging. So here you can already get a sense for how this company works, right? You are sued for something. This definitely costs a lot of money. What are you doing? You're not trying to keep the ball um, low and kind of minimize the damage. No, you kind of try to create even more damage in terms of let's be loud about this. And that's exactly what they did. Um, I heard... Another really cool story. I listened to a podcast with a German brand director um, because now this is a little bit of the inconsistent, uh, consistently inconsistent. So this is, you would expect this, right? There is something about Oatly not being milk, but better than milk. That's one thing. So you would say, okay, that's kind of in line with what Oatly is and does. So German brand director tells the story. They landed the first railway, uh, the first um, big corporate client in Germany, which was German Railways. So German Railways have their onboard bistros and they have their bistros on their, um, in the uh, train stations. And they have, um, yeah, Oatly won this German Railways as one of the very big corporate accounts. And what they wanted to do is sign more of these B2B business accounts. So they launched an ad campaign that said the CEO of the company that first reaches 10,000 liters of Oatly product will receive a stapler. (laughs) (laughs) And that was an ad campaign, right? So that was a B2B ad campaign saying, hey, if you are a corporate partner and you go through, uh, you're the first one to go through 10,000 liters, you will receive a stapler for your executive office. <laughs> so if they would order 10,000 liters or if they would consume or? Yeah, the first one going through. So you don't have to, you don't have to order 10,000 liters, but the first big corporation that goes through consumes like in total mm. uh, 10,000 liters of Oatly the CEO will get a stapler. <laughs> <laughs> so 
maybe that wasn't the biggest campaign, right? But I think it's like it shows yeah. a little bit the direction of what they are doing. Um, and I personally personally like this campaign, but honestly, again, they are still consistent in a way because most of Oatly's communication is about plant-based diet being the way forward in a world threatened by the climate crisis. So most of the communication is about, hey, they are doing studies with pro athletes showcasing the impact of vegan diet. Two-year study comparing the football team, half of this or part of this football team eats a vegan vegan diet, the other uh, half eats a non-vegan diet. And then they uh, track this, um, this study, publish, make it into content and publish the results. Or um, they compare... Uh, they compare the environmental footprint of um, dairy products and plant-based products. So a lot of their communication is actually exactly in this nutritional and sustainability field of uh, of the market. Yeah. Are you going to talk about the packaging stuff they have on there where they actually have like the carbon footprint of each of their... Yeah. I mean, this goes... You're completely right, and this is my next point, and I would actually even give them credit and say it's not only um, a marketing focus. They do have an operational focus on sustainability too. So their full production is carbon footprint audited from raw material to final production. Um, Their packaging is made from renewable materials and, as you said, also labels uh, the carbon footprint of it. They try to have as much as possible localized production, which is obviously a business reason because you have shipping costs, but also a environmental reason because you don't have to ship in the first place. So transportation, uh, they do focus on waste management and selling residue of the production um, yeah, to other companies so they can use it. So there is not only the inherent um upside that they communicate of well we are not dairy we are plant-based and inherently this has a uh, lighter footprint on the world if you yeah if you go uh, alongside these public uh, publicated um this these publications but they're also doing something in their uh, business practices to yeah be a sustainable company i've even heard them frame themselves i don't you know quite sincerely as we are a sustainability movement um, that sells oat-based products. And that's marketing again, I would say. <laughs> I think it so, is. yeah. Um, <laughs> no, but I agree with you. So the thing is, I, or not I, but I think everybody is very conscious as soon as somebody has sustainability so big on their flags, right? Um, and that's maybe even, maybe that's not even fair, uh, because why would you attack somebody who says they're sustainable more than somebody who doesn't say a word about sustainability and everybody knows they're not sustainable? Um, but again, you're much more... Um, I think people tend to be much more critical towards these kind of companies who say they're um, sustainable. And then they're under much more scrutiny. Mm. Um, which leads me... Or maybe now let's do a small detour to something we have already mentioned. Um, so despite their efforts that Oatly tries to be sustainable and is, I, w- I would think they are a sustainable company, um, 
much more than a lot of other companies. They are criticized of greenwashing. They are criticized of the fact that they actually do waste management in a way that people don't like it. So I said they do waste management by selling residue to companies who use it. Well, these companies are pig farms. So mm -hmm. there was um, another backlash that, hey, you are preaching to us that we should not drink dairy and consume dairy, but then you sell your residue to pig farms. Um, so that was a huge backlash. Um, what else? Just generally, just being criticized for a lot of the campaigns that they have. And I think I'm not here and I haven't done honestly enough research. And I'm also not a trained, like I'm not trained in, how do you call this even? I'm not trained to make a verdict about whether this company is actually sustainable or not. Um, but what I can say is that Oatly has a very interesting way of dealing with this criticism, which is first saying that they never said that they are a perfect company, but they are a good company with true intentions. So that's the first reaction. Whenever somebody criticizes them, they're like, hey, yeah, we do sell to pig farms. And okay, thanks for pointing this out. We'll look into that. Um, we never said we we're perfect. We just said we we're a good company. We are better than most of the other companies. Um, and we can promise you that we have true intentions about being sustainable. Um, and the other thing is the fuckoatly.com uh, website. Mm -hmm. So have both of you seen this website? Yeah, I haven't actually. Okay, that's also a nice example of storytelling, Tom, similar to the About Us website uh, on their Oatly page, on the Oatly.com page. Fuck Oatly basically summarizes the biggest backlashes and controversies about the brand. So there is an instance where they sold a small farm in the UK for infringing their um, for infringing their brand. Uh, they're discussing this, then this issue about selling their residue of the production to pig farms and so on. So these huge, huge topics. But then there's also a repository of tweets. So you can have a look at the, okay, these are the big topics, but here are a ton of other topics that people criticize us for. Then you click on this and what you see is just screenshots of tweets where people gave the company... <sighs> Yeah, I wanted to swear again. So people <laughs> criticized the company. And um, yeah, one detail, they're also doing community outreach and answering all these uh, messages in-house. There is no external communication agency. So they see just discussions with random people. Some discussions very objective. Other discussions like very, let's say how discussions are in the internet, which is draw discussion. So they kind of try to explain stuff. Sometimes they even draw the author. So it's basically just a collection of all criticism or the maybe not all, but a collection of criticism they receive on social media. It's an interesting uh -huh. way, PR way of handling it. I'm looking at it now. Um, yeah. And have you, you seen uh, F Oatly? Yeah, looking at that So now. literally like, fuck fuck Oatly and it says like welcome to fuck fuck Oatly you're probably here because you totally hate fuck Oatly so it's like a spin on like if you don't like that page <laughs> you can actually confirm by clicking one big button that you don't like that you dislike uh, f Oatly.com and 362,000 people have confirmed 
I'm gonna be now and one more just to see what happens. Oh, just the number goes up. So it's like a playful game. Like, hey, we do this all like storytelling ourselves and uh, we use and spin this bad news. So in a way that we control the way it's portrayed. But then also we play on this like game of like, hey, if you actually dislike all these people who dislike Oatly, you can help us show your approval somehow. Yeah. I mean, I think it's definitely going into this direction of love it, love us or hate us, right? This really, really edgy way of having a brand. Uh, but yeah, it's also smart because you can still control what's being said, right? Mm -hmm. So they discuss or they show their um, view on these topics, on these controversies. So yeah, it's also PR in a way, or not mm -hmm. in a way, it's, it's actually pure PR. Mm. cool that was a brand you ready for distribution the last big strategic move in the uh, Kreuzberg area uh, era give it to us cool so distribution one thing they did during this era was opening new geographic markets within Europe so just remember in 2020 uh, in 2012 um, what they did was, um, yeah, joining the company as CEO, being the new or being the new CEO, um, and uh, turning the company around, basically rebranding the company, completely putting the company in a different positioning. But what they also did is um, expanding. So they entered the UK, they entered Germany, they entered the Netherlands, they entered a whole bunch of other company uh, countries in Europe. Um, and what's even more interesting than the geographic expansion itself is who they targeted within their markets. Because traditionally, the company sold in health food shops and supermarkets. When the company grew, they were more mainstream in supermarkets. But Tony and John... Um, made, I would say, a genius move to put the focus on baristas and cafes. So they basically used baristas and this whole hype around this community. Maybe they even were helping this hype um, to position the Oatly brand. And they used baristas as ambassadors for Oatly. So these baristas, they were rigorously trained they were even given a specific product, the Oatly Barista Edition. They did pop-up events at coffee shops. So there was a huge investment, a huge um, deliberate focus on this. And this is also, let's say, how the company entered the next era of the company. Um, and because this is exactly how they entered the US market. In the US, Oatly was the first company to offer oat milk. So it wouldn't be a great move to just put your oat milk into a supermarket, right? Because if it's a tough. consumer just doesn't know what this product is, how are they going to buy it? So what they did is, in the beginning, only targeting baristas and again, only targeting New York and Brooklyn. <laughs> hence the Brooklyn, <laughs> hence the Brooklyn era of this, um, or let's say entering Brooklyn with this 
uh, strategy was the end of the Brooklyn era of this whole company. Because this entering a market through this cafe and barista um, avenue has two huge upsides. The first one is you introduce people to your new product in a controlled environment. So as I said, the baristas, they were trained how to use the um, the milk properly, how to make the best uh, foam and how to yeah present an oat latte as perfectly as possible. And it enables you to build a premium brand. So if you're part of this barista movement, um, bearded, like shirt inked arms like cool dudes then you're part of this right so you're basically creating a movement you're creating a premium brand so this berlin kreuzberg brooklyn era was quite a successful one for the company they as i said took over the company in nine in 2012 with 17 million us dollar in sales and they moved it to slightly over 40 million US dollar in 2016. And we have to state what their goal was when they took over. So they said, we're going to turn this into 1 billion uh, in revenue company. So each year, we're going to go from 20 to 1,000 millions, which is a billion, so 50x. Exactly. So, so it took them four years to basically, what did you say, double, triple? Yeah, a little more than double. So 17 to 40. Yeah. So on the one hand, 2012 to 2016, four years, doubling revenue. Keep in mind, you're not a tech company, right? You are producing stuff. You are like, this is a product company. You need oats. You need factory. You need shelf space. Shelf space in the freezer, in the cooling section is like among the hardest thing you can ever get um so yeah it's not a tech company where you can just like say okay let's up our service and i mean i know it's not as simple right but there is more to scaling than just selling uh, that's what i'm trying to say mm. so they did an pretty okay job right they built a business from 17 to 40 million in four years but as alan said that was not the goal they needed they wanted a billion in sales. And from 40 million to a billion in sales, there is a long way. And with linear growth that they had from 2012 to 2016, I didn't do the math, but I would say that, yeah, we would have another century to yeah, with actually. Linear, yes. So with linear, yes, yes, yes. I just wanted to add one thing before you go into uh, the third stage of the company, which is this barista strategic move. It sounds like, in hindsight, a lot of these strategic moves look so simple and so obvious. But when you're in the position of trying to make them yourself, then it's super, super tough to know what to do because you can do so many things, but what most companies, what most leaders business and design leaders tend to do is just copy what everyone else is doing. And in this case, this wouldn't have worked because we had uh, gatekeepers within the companies, within the retail shops, um, who were like, no, like what is Oatly? What is oat milk? Why should we store you? And they made a really, really smart strategic move with baristas. And um, there is another industry, very parallel industry, who used exactly this playbook 
Do you know who I'm talking about? S- same industry, other kind uh, of food. I mean, like, yes, basically. So plant-based yeah. meat. Yeah. So they actually went after high-end chefs and restaurants first to gain the, let's say, popularity and for more people to learn about this product, to gain this feeling of, okay, this is a legit uh, product category. And only then did the founders of the plant-based uh, yeah, meat companies went to the retailers and told them, hey, we want to be on the shelves right next to meat. You know, not yeah. like, don't put us like in some other part of the store. And it sounds so simple and obvious in hindsight, but strategic, strategic decisions are usually simple, but not easy. I I like this thought because I think we can go a little bit deeper into the topic of why is this actually not obvious to do? So in the hindsight, you, as you said, it's kind of obvious, right? So you have a barista movement. Everything in barista is cool. Um, you have people buying these super um, expensive coffee machines, but if they're not buying these super expensive coffee machines, they buy themselves a latte for six euros or six dollars. So if you obviously you go into that if you want to build a brand, but think the other way around. How much do you think you can sell of milk in a big supermarket compared to a coffee shop. So I think when you think of volumes, you're like, why even bother with coffee shops? How much milk will you sell in a coffee shop? It's nothing. Like what you want to do is you sell your liter or gallons container of milk. This is your business, right? You Your business is to put packs of milk into a shelf and sell as much volume as possible and then somebody comes up and says hey let's for a moment not care about volume let's go into coffee shops who don't sell a lot of volume milk but we need to do this in order to enter this market and everybody tells you you don't enter a market with not selling right you enter a market through selling and that's why i think it's super counterintuitive because you are obviously judged by volume And when I say volume, there are two kinds of volume. The first one is volume of price. So your liters uh, multiplied with the dollars or euros a liter costs, but you're also judged with the liters that you actually sell. And when you go into uh, a new market and you say, well, first we're going to sell not many liters because we're going to go into coffee shops, that's exactly opposite to what KPI usually uh, is used in, in this company. Mm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. So, um yeah, we said steady growth, great brand. Everybody knows um everybody knows the company also now in the US. Uh but your goal was to reach 1 billion, but you're still only at 40 million. So what you do? You go into the next area of the company which I call Silicon Valley. Mm, nice um yeah so while the era before the brooklyn kreuzberg era was more nuanced to explain there's a quite short summary for this era it's about exponential growth it's about hockey sticking the oats it's about getting from 40 million to 1 billion in the foreseeable future because you have already been CEO for four years. And as we know, external CEOs don't usually live longer than 
either four, five, or six years, or they're super successful and they live for 20 years. But there is barely something like in between. Either you're successful and reach your goal, or you're out. So, as said, 2016, they entered the US market. Um, 2018, they entered the Chinese market. They plan to capitalize on the China's growing demand on dairy alternatives. And they also expanded into other Asian markets like Singapore, South Korea, uh, around the same time. And they also entered uh, markets in the Middle East. And to see the full picture of this international expansion, I need to tell you that they did not only establish sales presence there. They opened production facilities in the US and China. So they're not only selling the same everywhere, they're tweaking their messages in every market. They're even tweaking their recipes for the markets. They are producing in these markets. Mm. And from what I just said, you might already sense that this type of growth can hardly be financed through their own operations, right? Through their own cash flows. So they needed investors. And they needed not just any investors, they needed investors with big pockets. 2016, Belgium-based Verinvest Invest, and a company called China Resources acquired a majority stake of Oatly. So not what just a name, investors. By the way. Like, <laughs> what a name, China, China Resources. Resources. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so like a bit this generic. They yeah. probably use Helvetica for their <laughs> logo. The Times New Rome. <laughs> <laughs> The not so cool Helvetica. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so okay. how much did they invest? Um, I don't know. I couldn't okay. find the data. The only thing I could find was that they did not only invest, but they bought a majority stake of Oatly. Okay. So Oatly was not Oatly anymore. Oatly was owned by majority stake was owned by World Invest and China Resources already in 2016. The key factor was Oatly, like financing Oatly's expansion into the US, US and especially um, China and Asia, hence also the investment taken on from China. And it also showed that the Brooklyn area was kind of over. They wanted to go big. It wasn't about repositioning the brand anymore. It wasn't about refining the product anymore. It was about growth. 2020, next investment Oatly received 200 million of investment from a group led by Blackstone Investment, including celebrities like Oprah Winfrey, Natalie Portman, um, Jay-Z, I think, um, and a former Starbucks CEO. So like big names, not only in like the consortium, not I'm not only talking about um, I'm not only talking about the celebrities, I'm talking about Blackstone too, huge investment company, huge investment firm, private equity firm. Now, 2021, Oatly went public with an IPO on Nasdaq. They raised 1.4 billion in this IPO and they were valued at 10 billion um, market cap. So we're still talking about the same company, right? It's oats, it's oat milk. And yes, they have 35 to 45 products, but it's still oat milk. Um, and it's still the same company that had 40 million in revenue in 2016. So this whole Oatly story that was so carefully crafted, it kind of turned sour, right? I told you that the brand always saw itself 
on the criticism which with these like controversies about how where they sold their residue and how sustainable they really were but they just created this edgy companies company and reacted in a way that you could basically accept right but now that's different because there was a huge criticism about the investors that they actually took on more precisely it's not only investors anymore it's the owners now and for many people that just doesn't add up anymore right so there was huge criticism about these um this on the one hand oatly positioning itself as sustainable ethical people and planet focused and then taking on investors or selling to owners that let's say mildly put have a questionable record on these values of wasn't, sustainability ethical being ethical about people and planet yeah wasn't one of those investors like involved in financing deforestation yeah. of uh, amazon exactly so first thing is china resources is not only called generically china resources but it's actually an enterprise that is owned by the people's republic of china mm. so many people just criticize that well human rights issues and association with chinese government isn't as closely related as you would expect from um oddly mm -hmm. then blackstone again criticized as having investment in companies that stand exactly for the opposite of what Oatly actually stands for it says um yeah it's involved in these companies um being associated with deforestation it heavily invests in fossil fuels uh, fossil fuel companies uh blackstone ceo is kind of question climate change just in general <laughs> so maybe not anymore so i tried to google this but so it's a discussion not gonna mm. we're not gonna sign up on this but just in general these two companies that are now the owners of oatly are exactly the opposite of what oatly positioned itself at and they have a very clear stance on that Oatly, because obviously they hear the criticism, but what they say is that to make large-scale systemic change, and I'm quoting here, um, in the global food system and double down on our mission of promoting sustainability, it's necessary to engage with and have the backing of major financial entities. And I continue... Um, accepting investments from major global players even those with less than perfect environmental records we can potentially influ influence and drive positive change from within so we like take money from the bad guys so they don't use it in the bad stuff <laughs> yeah we are now so, in this circle and we can maybe influence them now it's like yeah and, uh, when people say this i don't know I, it's so hard not to be a little cynical slope. i'm going to change the mafia from the inside it's like no you're not exactly. you're going to end up dead man <laughs> and that's how they try to do it so also on the bottom of who we are page on oatly there is a message from the ceo it reads super short but i think you can interpret this as a answer to the criticism about this scaling um and investment strategy and it reads we need to remember that speed and scale are exactly what our mission requires so the story behind them is we do good and we can only do good if we have money and we need to do good fast because otherwise our planet goes to um mm. yeah 
shit yeah. if yeah, we yeah. go with this uh, language of this episode. You're fully leading to the explicit <laughs> nature of this episode. Me, me personally, I, ju- I, I don't buy it. How does right? it make so, you both feel as a message? How does that? How did that play out for you? I think there are so many examples where this is not done this way. So it's not like there. There are much nicer ways to acquire. Not nicer, but there's ways to. If you need funding, you can still get funding from other sources. You don't have to go to questionable companies and private equity funds that invested in these type of uh, activities beforehand. So I think. There, even if there's validity to the fact we need to, you know, there's time sensitivity, there's urgency, we need to grow fast. There's other ways to finance it, to raise money. Yeah. Yeah. I remember uh, recommending Oatly to a friend a few years ago who was going veggie. And um, as soon as I mentioned the brand to him, he was like, aren't they the evil ones though? And I was like, whoa, sheesh. And he shared the, an article in, from The Guardian with me where they were talking about this stuff. It was like, yeah, like, it's, you know, I can understand how it was only, a, it's only a small investment, but what, what a potentially incredibly damaging decision to make to be financed through those companies. I mean, this is not news to us, we're talking about it now, but, you know, that's the thing that stuck in my friend's mind. Not all the good stuff, all the messaging, the history, um, the kind of culture yeah. they were trying to, and you know, maybe not the wisest move is what we're saying. I usually don't like to speak in sayings, but there was, I initially thought of one saying, and there is a German and an English equivalent. I'm just going to use the English equivalent. Um, it says, Who pays the piper calls the tune. Yeah. So, the person who pays the per, the person who pays the person who makes the music also uh, will Chooses say the will choose the the song, and it's not gonna be wow wow <laughs> no car. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think Oatly gonna sue us for um, overplaying that that tune? Uh, that's why I didn't play their tune. I'm just singing it, so that's fine, right? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> I if feel not, like we're gonna the use the now will be dropping a lawsuit on the we, we don't have the financial backing of anybody to <laughs> withstand a lawsuit. <laughs> They're a lawyer on Okay, you made me worried no, now. I'm but joking. we're gonna use their playbook on them on, on, yeah. on them. You yeah, that's have, true. Yeah. Mm. Mm. No. Okay. So this leads me now to the point that not only me, but also here in the news of what happened in 2023, it seems it's also the end of the Silicon Valley era, honestly. Because this person who led the company from 2012 to 2023, Tony Peterson, was replaced as a CEO in end of May this year. So the new CEO is, bear with me again, Jean-Christophe Flat. Platin, 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 Platin I don't know. Uh, he joined only uh, Oatly a year ago, um, and he's honestly a food industry veteran. So he has a huge track record of 30 years within Mars, um, where he managed brands in, I think, pet foods and chocolate. So he knows the food industry. Um, not again, coming from a company that is particularly well-known for their sustainability efforts. Again, not want to be sued here 
I haven't looked especially close into Mars, but Mars didn't strikely, strike me as having a strategy of being positioning themselves as um, very sustainable. So, Tony Patterson is gone, the person who actually made Oatly into what it is right now. Um, he didn't live until his goal was achieved of getting to 100 uh, to a billion. Uh, I guess Alan will tell us a little bit more about current revenue numbers later. Um, there is another signal that was published this year, um, which is Oatly selling assets. Oatly built, as I said, not only distribution and sales in the US, but they also built their factory in the US. And they built especially a factory in Utah. And that was one of their biggest prides because they said this factory is one of the most sustainable of its kind. Huge focus on energy efficiency, huge focus on water use, the goal of 100% renewable energy use, also sourcing oats from Utah. So this was a prestige project, a huge cornerstone, a huge puzzle, uh, piece of the puzzle of entering the US market. And now they're selling it off. Um, they're selling it off to a manufacturer, actually, to a contract manufacturer. So they will still, as I understood, manufacture the old base. And then this company, Yaya Foods, who now buys this, um, this plant for almost 100 million euros, will take control of the manufacturing and the packaging of the product in the end. So they will still produce Oathly products. But exactly. it will be through this entity that bought this plant. So what they're going to do is everything will stay the same, yeah. but they just got some money back that they apparently desperately need because why would why else would you do this now? Uh, but I yeah. think this whole strategic decision, I mean, this strategic decision is definitely not explainable from my perspective. So why mm -hmm. does this help this brand to get stronger? Why does this help the brand to be more successful, the company to have more successful? I think, yeah, that's a different perspective that it needs. Um, and I think we have now teased it long enough, um, the numbers game. Uh, and maybe we now need to go into numbers, right? Yeah, I'll tell you why they're selling the factory, just in a <laughs> bit. But let's go step by step, okay? So, okay. again, when Tony took over the company, the publicly stated goal was we want to get to 1 billion um what it was US dollars or euros mm. in revenue, I don't remember, but it's roughly, uh, it's in the ballpark. Um, okay, so, but maybe let's, uh, let's now first have a look at uh, revenue from, no, actually let's go to the market cap, which kind of explains the problem. So market cap is how valuable the company is. And as you said, Franz, uh, the company IPO'd, so it went public in May of 2021. So roughly two years ago. And the price at which it was selling at the time, so one stock was $17. And actually in 2021, there was a lot of op optimism around this uh, company and the whole market. So by the end of the first day, uh, which is how you measure like how optimistic investors are about the company. So by the end of the first day, the price was not 17, but $22. Great. So the company was valued over $10 billion um, but if you look at the stock price of the company today, it's worth, one stock is worth $1.04. And 
cents which means the market cap is now only 600 million dollars so they lost 95 percent of value between 2021 and 2023 so in just two years and a fun fact if your stock is valued less than one dollar for 30 consecutive days it gets delisted it means it's no longer sold on the uh, exchange so this is like nasdaq's uh, nasdaq's a um, internal rule uh, for how they delist uh, stocks and if that happens then you're in big trouble as a public company so why but now let's have a look at why has this happened why has company gone from such a high valuation in 2021 to now being on the verge of bankruptcy i would say um Okay, so let's have a look at 2016, which was the final year when the company was still run non-Silicon Valley style. Um, so in 2016, the revenue of the company was 55 million with a very, very tiny profit of $170,000. So that's basically nothing. You Basically, you are even, um, but still, you know, you're not uh, making any loss. Um, but if even if we stopped here, we would say, oh, this is not the best ratio between the revenue and profit. But obviously, Oatly was growing heavily, so this finances even tilted further. So in 2020, the revenue went from only 55 million to 420 million, which is really an astonishing growth. So from 50 million to basically 420, but their loss was 58 million. So this means that for each dollar, um, basically every time they would sell a product, and let's say that this product was just $1, it would cost them $1.13 to make that product. So they were losing 13 cents on every dollar they would sell. Now let's go to 2021. Again, impressive growth from 420 million to 640 million. That's crazy. It's, it's crazy for a hardware product, <laughs> for a physical product. But their losses went from, let's say, 60 million to 200 million. So 3x, which is, again, crazy. Can you say crazy again, Franz? <laughs> crazy. Yes, that's super crazy. Uh, so every now, every time we are selling a product for $1, we actually, it costs us $1.33 to make. Let's go to 2022. Did the uh, you know did the story? Did the picture get better? Um, revenue went from 640 million to 720 million, and their loss went from 200 to 350 million. Franz, go ahead. No, That's I'm crazy. out of phrases. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> so now. For every dollar we uh, bring in, we actually need to spend $1.48 to produce that thing. So, I mean, honestly, when I opened the annual reports, um, I was just, I couldn't believe my eyes. I saw like revenue, okay, 700 million, that's okay. And then I saw like, um, there's a column called profit and it says 340. And then this, profit is like written in brackets and this is how if you read annual reports and something is written in brackets this actually means negative number so i had to like be no way like i triple checked that this is 
actual result because when you look from the outside it looks like a successful big company everybody loves it everybody talks about it it's just like a category leader at least in europe for sure it is in terms of the oat milk and i would never have guessed like to see these numbers because this is quite a quite a big loss for yeah. a company that doesn't have like it's not didn't go down the vc route of raising uh, hundreds of millions from the venture capital so let's have a look at 2023 is the picture getting better now um now in in new year so obviously in 2022 they were communicating publicly with uh with their investors that yeah things are not going best but we're going to try to you know turn the corner so revenue again is up actually it's 13 percent uh increase from the first half a year of uh, 2022 uh so they're projecting to to make 780 million in revenue and this year which is again 50 million more than last year and their pro uh, so their loss uh is going to be slightly lower so instead of 350 million it is projected to be 300 million which is still a big number because so the company raised when they sold their shares they raised roughly 1.4 billion us dollars and only between 2016 and 2023 they lost over close to a billion in losses and that kind of explains why you start selling your assets. You sell your most fancy factory. So mm. you said, I didn't even find a number. So how much was it, Franz? 100 million? About a little bit less than, like 98 million. 98 million. Yeah. Yeah. So that basically buys you four months of losses at this rate. Yeah. Yeah. So they're basically trying to extend their the runway. Runway. So in, in, in early, like, and try to find a way to break even and to gain, hopefully gain some, uh, um, how do you say, confidence from investors so that their price, the stock price can go up because then maybe you can sell more shares and you can raise even more money. And then you hopefully get into like a positive reinforcement because at the moment, this is looking very bleak. When you report numbers like this, investors lose confidence, your price, stock price goes down, you cannot uh, raise money anymore, and there is no way you can find your way out. Um, and just as a comparison, so we had another company that wasn't really profitable uh, that we covered in the teardowns. It was Warby Parker. Do you remember their revenue? How much was it? Don't remember, but have the notes. So it's 600 million, so it's very similar scale right 600 mm -hmm. million and their loss was 100 million and here we're talking basically like in 2022 Oatly had 720 million in revenue 350 million in loss so i guess i'm saying like if you love Oatly, stock up <laughs> buy as many products as you can because with this you're helping the company but also you're helping yourself if you love the product because maybe it won't be Ain't gonna be here. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Uh, Jim, um, can I ask a question sure. about that? So, to to my naive brain, selling your production facility to try and raise, uh, you know, get some investment to make the bottom line look better. Um, you need that facility to make the product. So, would it be a case of short term sell assets like that with a view to probably reopening or? buying back something like that it just seems like you need it to make the product i'm i'm kind of lost and i would think that any investor 
worth their salt is going to see through that strategy. Um, don't know. It seems very desperate to me. <laughs> I mean, what it does is it transfers from your um, it it eats away your uh, gross margins, right? So what you're doing is first you own something and you had to pay money to run it. Now you sell it and now you need to pay somebody else to produce your products. So what happens is your direct cost of producing this will, uh, will of producing this product will just increase because they it will still be produced right before you had to run the comp the factory yourself now you sell the factory okay. and then you basically still produce in the same factory but you pay somebody else to run the factory right so mm -hmm. this goes into your direct cost of um, producing the product meaning your gross margins will um, be lower but at the same time what you have is, 100 million in cash sure which if you need it's a good thing yeah. right so yeah. what basically happens is so what you have is you have a business that was barely profitable in 2016 right then you got huge cash inflow um did you even get huge cash inflow well they yeah, bought you sold stocks Yeah, you, no, not even stocks, but the first investment, right? You you had an investment from this Belgium uh, investment firm and China Resources. So you get this money from them. Then you get 200 uh, million of investment from BlackRock. Yep. And then you collect 1.4 billion in an IPO. Yep. So all of that gives you, let's say, 1.6 billion in cash in the bank. And then what you do is you use this money to scale your production and your operations and hope that this money is enough to not only scale, but in the end also have a business that is profitable. But if you just scale and you don't have a business that's profitable, it just means that it will year for year, month for month, eat up the cash reserves that you have built with getting these investments. And eventually that's going to be zero And then the question will be, will there be another investor that chips in some money? As we have seen right now, that's not as easy. We see big, highly funded companies going bankrupt at the moment. Uh, so just looking at VanMoo, for example, huge um, e-bike company with a similar value set and mission set than Oatly. So you can basically put them in the same category of companies, value-driven companies working building products for a better world just went bankrupt mm. because they had the same issue, getting a lot of investment, trying to build a company, trying to scale, in the end didn't work out, ran out of money. And if that happens to Oatly as well, there won't be much Oatly anymore. Could this be one of the reasons my Oatly shot up in price recently and I've switched to another uh, company? Good one. Alan, I'm, yes. I want to hear more about this. <laughs> I mean, most of those price increases were just due to the fact that the raw materials also went up. Mm. There was inflation, there was shortages of oats in Canada and US last summer. So those jumps were predominantly because of just uh, um, increases in the raw materials. Unfortunately, not because of the pricing power that uh, Oatly has. By the way, did you know that Oatly is not even the biggest um oat milk brand in the US. Yeah, so they're it's second place the second now, aren't they? Mm. Getting cool. And who owns the biggest brand? 
uh, HP Pool something called yeah. this? A dairy company. A dairy company, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but the exact name is, I just slipped my mind, but yeah, it's yeah. a dairy company and the company, the brand is called Planet Oat. The, the one that has more than 30% uh, market share and only has 20-ish percent market right. share, which means, yeah, they were, they're not the biggest player in the US and Canada, but they are definitely in Europe. Um, but speaking of the gross margins, I mean, this is where the story just even gets sad, sadder, <laughs> um, more sad. Sadder is not the word, right? More sad. Yeah. Um, so we had an amazing gross margin company two or three episodes back, ESOP. I don't think we will ever find anything like that. Wow. 90 plus percent gross margin. Do you want to take a guess at Oatly's gross margin? Maybe France first, or did you see it? I did see it. It's got to be single digit based on what you've. It's very it. close to being single digit. It's eleven. It was eleven percent in twenty twenty two. Eleven percent. That's really really bad. That's really. Uh, bad. So no wonder. Yeah, because, I mean, in this industry, if you want to be profitable, you should aim above twenty five. So ideally somewhere around 30, 40, I did even more, but like at least 25 to 30%. So I had a look at another, let's say dairy company, which is public, uh, Danone. So the Paris multinational company with a lot of dairy products. And they also own like an oat-based milk brand in Europe called Alpro, Alpro. And their gross margins are, are around 40%. So that explains the new leadership because they're trying to find a way for this company to be run more, um, yeah, more like a dairy company and more profitably um, through distributions, through operations, just to get to a stage where they can be financially sustainable and recover and so that their stock price can recover. Um, however, the situation is bleak also on the consumer level. Um, so Franz talked about the fact that their two biggest bets in the last few years were uh, um, going to, they have this, they call them Americas. So uh, I guess that's North and South America and Canada probably as well, um, and China. So they, these are two new markets that they have opened. Uh, America has roughly 30% of their uh, revenues uh, and Asia or China is roughly 20% of their revenue. And both of these markets are either struggling or Oatly is struggling. So um, first, just a few words on the Europe. So in Europe, um, or Europe brings Oatly 50% of their revenue, and that's where they are undisputed king of the category. And that's also where they are, seem to be profitable. So you can't find actual like profitability per location, but the way the document is written, it reads like in Europe, they're profitable. So if they only stayed in Europe, um, which would be roughly 350 to 400 million in revenue, they would be okay. But they have these two, these two new markets that they wanted to develop to get to a billion in revenue, so Americas and Asia, and that's what seemingly isn't going that well. And that also explains why 
they would sell a plant in America and not in Europe uh, because you want to keep the one in the market that seems to be working best for you. Uh, but yeah, the US market, the thing that happened for the first time in the last 35 years is that the plant-based mill market actually declined. So for 35 years consecutively, it was growing and now it went down for two to three percentage uh, points in volume. So this is not in price, but actually in volume. So when I say volume, I mean liters. Because price-wise, it's uh, actually uh, went up, I think. I actually don't have the data here, but I'm assuming that it went up because of some other data. Um, because prices went up because of what we just discussed. So prices mm -hmm. went up because of the raw materials, but actually volume went down. And it's the same thing for uh, Oatly. So actually they had a growth of 19% in the US, oh, sorry, in Americas, but volume wise, they only went up by 1.7%, which tells you that most of this growth came from increasing prices because of the new raw materials. Um, and certain research um, researchers and trends are showing in the direction that this market is going to become tougher and tougher to compete in. Uh, so when you have a stagnant market and um, there's just more fight amongst the companies that are already in this place, which means prices are getting lowered, you know, companies want to actually stay in the market, they want to um, not lose the market share. And what happens then is, yeah, certain promotions, companies go all the way to the break-even point so that they, they are the ones that survive and then later they maybe increase the price. And if this is going to happen in the US, sorry, in Americas, then Oatly is in a really bad position to compete because they don't really have a chance to lower prices. Because uh, they have the worst um, margins already. Yeah. I mean, I don't know the gross margin for others, but because Oatly is one of the rare companies to be public and to be selling this type of product. But my assumption is that they have a worse cross margin than others, or at least they don't have a, a successful, profitable dairy company at the back to fund those losses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to say and, Planet Oats backers, Planet Oats parent company can probably provide runway for quite a long time. But 1.2 billion runway. So I, I would, I would even doubt that. So I see the point of hey, you can only sustain this fight of about margins when the market is stagnating. If you have a big backer in the back of your yeah, in the back of your company. And we already discussed that the market leader of oat milk in the US is called, what do you say again? Planet, Oat. Planet, Planet Oat, exactly. Owned by HP Hood, LLC. HP Hood, yeah. Exactly. Did you find numbers about, like, how big is this company? It's private. LLC. Okay. But I doubt that they have 1.2 billion in the bank to... Um, I think they have to two back billion the... a year, but is that? Uh, but I'm sorry, just trying to find. Carry on. Life so research revenue. On it's uh, roughly three to four billion, mm -hmm. um, but it's not public, so you don't know exactly how much reserves yeah. they have and so on. So what I'm trying to say is that yeah, I think these companies also. are just more financially viable run and have a better cost structure. Yeah. And uh, they definitely don't have uh, a billion in the bank to finance the losses of Planet Oats, um, just as actually Oatly had 
just two years ago. Yeah. So that's crazy if you take into account that point A is you already had this money to grow. You were still not able to build a business that has um, healthy uh, gross margins. Um, and then considering that you are still a premium product. So if you compare like plant-based milk with uh, animal-based milk, it's what 30, no, 50, 70% more expensive, yeah, I would say. Especially Oatly, yeah. Oatly, maybe even 100%. Mm -hmm. So if you, and if Danone has a, a margin, a gross margin of 40%, with 100% lower priced products on average, I mean, I know they have Alpro, but let's say blend it all together, uh, they still have lower priced products on average, but still you are the company who only has premium price products and you still can't have an operating margin that is somewhere close to um yeah bringing you to profit then where Stuff. do you want to go right yeah you can't raise prices because then people won't buy you even like won't even more shy away from buying you in financially unstable times mm. um yeah and you can't also lower your prices because your margins are already so bad yeah, it's a tricky thing. So they already talk about ramping up, actually investing more into promotion in the Americas. Mm -hmm. um, but that means even lower <laughs> lower gross margins. So it seems like they want to fight by promoting better, not by lowering the price, which I guess it's a good sign. At least like you don't want the premium product to debase itself by going with a lower price. So I think this is a, a right bet, but it still shows that it will actually cost them even more in this market, specific market, to get to uh, profitability. Even We didn't even talk about it, China yet, and apparently the problem there is just uh, consumer preference and the way these pre like yeah preferences shape over time are much more fluid. So oddly was seen as a novelty thing, something like a Western brand, and it sold really well in the beginning. But post-COVID, um, the, 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 the sales are just not, they're just struggling. Um, so there are a few factors for this. One is I just talked about a different consumer mindset and preference uh, for novelty. And the second thing is also just the Chinese economy for the first time in a long time. Looks like it's headed down a recession. Um, did you know that urban youth unemployment in China is 21%? Did not. It's like I had no idea. Crazy, crazy number. And if that's true, uh, because again, uh, with Chinese statistics, it's just it's it's less transparent than in the Western um, world, and as such, it's hard to know if this statistic particularly is correct. But it at least shows certain like yeah worrisome signs for the Chinese economy. And uh, if that's true, you know, then in these kind of uh, recession times, people do reach for cheaper um, cheaper alternatives. And if we now combine these two things, so we have Europe, which is profitable and working well, and then we have America and we have China, who as markets are struggling for you in like as a product, it, it does paint a bleak picture um, in terms of reaching 1 billion profitably. Um, 
but maybe another way is just to divest from these two markets and just be okay with Europe. But that's not what is in their strategic plans. The strategic plans is to stay active in these markets and to just find a way to profitability. But yeah, it is a really tricky, tricky uh, situation. Seems to be a trend in the uh, alternative meat, dairy, alternative world generally. What a bigger conversation than today, but we've seen it with like Beyond Meat and a lot of meat alternatives uh, suffering a similar fate at the moment or sim mm. similar trend. Um, yeah. Yeah, just with a physical product and uh, scaling this is just a completely different ballpark than with the uh, software because you need to build plants, you need to like you need to move stuff. So it's just much more expensive yeah. and it's just much more likely something to go wrong. But let's go into our opportunities and threats and buy, sell, hold. Any volunteers as the first ones? Hmm. I'll be honest, I, I struggle with, with this one. I mean, the, the threats we've already talked about um, from, from Oatly specifically, um, it's it's a easy product to copy and there are plenty of alternatives out there that are better backed and, yeah, um, have better economies of scale and are cheaper. I guess we've already covered ad nauseum that, that threat. They seem to be on the brink. Um, I'm struggling to see an opportunity, to be fair, outside of maybe taking some really uh, dodgy investment and having to apologize for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mine opportunity bucket is also empty, but I think the opportunity they have is almost like descaling, uh, divesting from certain markets and just focusing better on those that are more promising. Yeah, but the threat, I think you pointed one, the point of the biggest one, Tom, like just losing, running out of money, going bankrupt. In this case, probably they'll they'll still find a buyer who's going to take them over. I'm sure Danone or some, someone else would be glad mm. to just plug this into their uh, machine. Um, another, another couple of threats I could think of is uh, climate change, uh, droughts, floods, other severe weather. Um, uh, it just affects oat production and the price and basically all of your products rely on this same raw material you know so if something happens to the global production of oat which i did check and it was pretty constant over the last few years um globally it was constant but you have fluctuations locally and um the i don't know if you mentioned this france but they built plants factories in each of these three markets i think you did right so they have plants in china in u.s do they still have one? Do they have two in the US? And they I think just one is one? in Texas and one is in right. Utah. Okay, so they, they kept one, I think, as well. Uh, which means, yeah, you rely on the local oat uh, production. Um, so that's a big threat uh, in general. And then since you do so much business across uh, the globe, there's also currency risk. Um, I think they try to work around this by actually having again plants in those um, in those locations because then your costs and sales are in the same currency um, but uh, if they start closing the factories uh, and they just say hey we want to have a glow like centralized production just in Europe then this currency risk is increased 
So yeah, it looks yeah. pretty bleak on my side. Yeah, same here. I'm not going to repeat what you said. What was surprising to me as well was that if you listen to these brands, you feel like the consumer world is actually shifting towards plant-based alternatives. And I've learned in the research that that's not happening currently. So dairy market is growing at a slow pace. I think US was 4%. Non-dairy market in the US was, as you said, stagnating, uh, slight decline or very small. Decline, um, yeah, 2%. Yeah. So I was under the impression that consumer behavior is actually changing and we do see a shift from not. So there is always two things, right? Two things can grow. You can have growth in dairy and plant-based stuff and you can also have a growth at the same time in non-dairy non um um yeah plant-based stuff so this can be true if the whole world prospers and has more um, purchasing power but then if that's not true you need to eat into the other um field so if you want to grow as um plant-based you need to take away from um, dairy and animal-based, but apparently that does not happen. Doesn't happen in um, dairy products. Doesn't happen also in um, in meat products. So that was very surprising to me. Um, could obviously also be that this is current, like last year post-COVID stuff, because these things are still much more expensive. Um, like non-animal uh, alternatives are usually still um, sold on a premium to to meat or animal-based stuff. So it could also be the economic situation in general that people just do not on a daily basis go to the more expensive alternatives. Um, so that was um, surprising to me and adds another threat. So, and I don't see, I mean, yeah, I don't want to predict how the world economy goes, but we don't see uh, like a very early boom again. I would say so. I can we can be quite certain about that, right? So true. So this not being investment advice, I'm still gonna ask you, Franz. Uh, <laughs> would you be buying, selling, holding? <sighs> it's so would... low that it's tempting to buy, right? Yeah, but if I see the losses and the money that they still have left, I would still not buy. And I don't know if I would sell. I mean, obviously, it's not worth anything anymore if you have bought <laughs> um, a few years back. Yeah. So that's not great in the first place. But yeah, I think I think this company does not have a good outlook. Tom? Ditto. What Fran said, yeah, sadly, because ultimately some of their, um, maybe some of their sustainability decisions and um, there are companies out there that are going to are reproducing this product in, in ways that aren't as, um, aren't as ethically minded as Oatly and yeah, I think it's a shame that a company like Oli that is is in part trying to do good stuff is probably going to bite the dust. Um, yep. So yeah, I would not be buying. 
but I would be sad to see them gone. Uh, should mm. that happen? I don't think it will happen that they will be gone. It there just might be a small little logo on the back of their packaging that says Danone or something like that. Because when you have such a strong brand like Oatly, yeah. someone yeah. will buy you oh, even yeah. if you go bankrupt. Yeah. So you don't have to be worried. So we can end on a high note. So you don't have to be worried about Oatly going away from <laughs> from the stores. But uh, it's like financially wise, yeah, it's it's in a really tricky position. It can still be turned around, um, but yeah, currently it doesn't look best. Sorry, yeah. Well, I, so I didn't expect that when I went no, into the Oatly no. research. I mean, I did know about the Blackstone investment and there was a huge backlash and I didn't really research at this point in time. So I knew that this would be something I would encounter in the prep of this um, podcast, but I did not expect to encounter devastating this. financials. <laughs> yeah. 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 Neither did I. But when I saw those big numbers in brackets, I was like, oof. That's going to be an interesting one. Good. And you have anything else in your notes or are we done? All done. Done. Good. Then as always, I'm going to invite you to our seven-day mini MBA. So if you enjoy this episode and you enjoy the business topics intertwined with design work, you will enjoy our seven-day mini MBA. It's a free email course where you receive seven emails over seven days, each email teaching you a business concept relevant for designers. So to sign up for this, you can head over to d.mba slash mini MBA. So d.mba slash mini MBA. Thanks, everyone, and see you soon in the next episode. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.